Yes, we all thank you for leading us in worship. What a wonderful piece that was. Um, I am appreciative to uh, Jessica Legrone and Chapel Office for inviting me to speak this morning. It is a, an awesome privilege and responsibility uh, to speak from this pulpit, as you can easily imagine. Um, and we are beginning a series this week in chapel, The Whole Bible for the, for the Whole World. And today is the first installment of that, letting you know kind of where we're at in this process. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I'm asking, and we are together asking, that you will guide our thoughts, our words, through every phase of this morning. In Jesus' name we're asking. Amen. When I was given this uh, topic of the whole Bible for the whole world, this simple little mind here thought of a two-part sermon. And there you have it. Uh, the whole Bible for the whole world. And uh, I thought I would tackle the last part first, for the whole world, and I thought I would go to one of the more obvious passages of Scripture related to that. As you know, the Great Commission as found in Matthew. Now, I know that our president has repeatedly schooled us off and on here and there that there are many Great Commissions in the Bible, and we dare not think there's just one. So I am not stepping in that pothole right there. Um, right off the bat, dear president, where are you? If you're watching, I think you might be, I don't know, but I, um, I'm, I'm agreeing with you at this point. However, this commission does appear delightfully and remarkably at the climax of the first gospel, which is the first book in our New Testament canons, and therefore it has attracted much attention and in its five verses, it says an awful lot. And so what I want to do is to just to simply begin by walking through about six little points related to this commission that most good readers see. So there's no uh, great novelty here, I hope. It's no novelty. Uh, but the first thing I would note with you simply is that the whole thing flows, does it not, out of the universal authority that's been given to the Lord Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we can't go anywhere where the flag has not already been planted. We, there is no foreign land. There are no strange people. God is already there. God is already through Christ ruling everywhere. And so he always goes before us. Uh, he is always engaged in his, in his saving rule. Everywhere we go, this is a great encouragement to us so that not only do we stand under his authority as spreading the gospel, but wherever we go, we are in a large part announcing his kingdom, announcing his global authority. The second point um, is the going. Go into all the world. And here I want to acknowledge that as many of you have heard, uh, that indeed this is a participle in Greek. And so the main verb is the next word, uh, make disciples. And so there is a tendency upon some to treat this participle as a circumstantial participle, and you would then translate it as you go, while you go, when you go, if you go, something like that. Um, I think that that's a misunderstanding of the Greek itself. And if you scratch it a little deeper, I think what you'll find is that this is what is often called an attendant uh, circumstance, in that there is a participle that is linked with a noun, and that the participle Sorry if I'm getting into the weeds here. 
but that the participle participates in the grammatical mood of the following noun. And therefore, the traditional translation of this, of go and make disciples, I think is actually the accurate way of interpreting this. The going is as much as part of the command as the making disciples. We can't quite be making disciples unless we're going. And so, rather than simply as you go or while you go, I think that the Lord Jesus himself is commanding us into a posture of venturing. Whether, as many people have said, whether it's down the street or around the world, the gospel is a venturing mission. We are on the move, we're looking, we're, we're, we're anticipating ways and new uh, uh, audiences, whether they be individuals or groups of people or people groups, for sharing the gospel of the Lord. So go. A third point, make disciples. And yes, indeed, this is the, you might say, the epicenter of the whole operation. It's the conceptual center. It's the core of the mission to be making disciples. Uh, but of what will that consist and how will that be done? I'm suggesting that the following participles are giving us something of how that's done, and we find two of them. Uh, one is in the baptizing, and the other, of course, is in the teaching um, them to observe all I have commanded you. Not to be thrown away are these. Not to be overlooked are these. The first is the baptizing, and I think as we could almost universally agree, this has to do with initiation. But it's more than that. It's not just baptizing in any way, form, or fashion. It's baptizing into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. This is an explicitly Trinitarian formula. We're not simply baptizing into God or into Jesus. We're not simply baptizing into spirituality. We're not calling people to be better. We're to find their true selves. We're baptizing into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. This is an explicitly Christian, Trinitarian vision we've got going on here. And then teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. This is my, the fifth point to pull out here. The Great Commission. Once I heard a sermon, actually it was only about six years ago. Wonderful fellow, he'll be in heaven, I'm sure. Um, but there's the, there's the other shoe dropping. Uh, he quoted the Great Commission, I suspect, about 15 times in the course of his sermon. It was powerfully effective as a rhetorical device, and he was splendid in his, in his, in his uh, uh, declamation of the Great Commission. Here was the weird thing about it. Every single time he quoted it, strap on your seatbelts, he omitted this line, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. My mouth was in my pants. Here, the, you know, the enshrining of this commission and then the neglecting of a key piece of it, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. I won't try to name it, it might not be fair, but this brother was part of a, of a, of a Christian tradition that emphasizes get them baptized, assure them of heaven, and move on. And this is not what this commission is about. This commission is, is, is extensive and expansive. I thought that I would sit down one day and count back through Matthew's gospel, book survey stuff. <laughs> and if we're here at the end of the gospel, and if Jesus uh, is looking back across all he has commanded them to do, I thought, well, 
even a good book survey, an inductive Bible study, would go back in Matthew's Gospel and say, what has Jesus commanded? And I counted up right at a hundred different things, both implicit and explicit, that Jesus has laid upon his disciples as things that they should be doing in, form, in the form of obeying him. My, what a large, what a wide, what an expansive call that is. And not just teaching them to understand all I've commanded or be able to report all I've commanded, but teaching them to actually observe how wide, how broad, how deep, and how long is this command amazing. And then the last point I'd like to make here is the, the, the last line, and behold, or lo, I am with you always. And what a beautiful promise that is. It's a promise to those who are always in this mode of sharing the gospel. And as many have pointed out, this seems at least to suggest the enabling that is involved and required if we're going to be going about the business of discipling the world. There must be the presence. There must be Jesus' own presence with us as we are, in fact, sharing this gospel. Well, I wanted to say that um, uh, that's the first uh, part of the sermon and the last part of the motto, that is, uh, the whole Bible for the whole world. Uh, but what about that first phrase? What about that first phrase, the whole Bible? Um, some of you who are not Wilmoreites or Wilmoreons, which I'm not sure which <laughs> label you would prefer, um, uh, maybe not schooled in the Wesleyan world, might kind of imagine that whole Bible means all 66 books. You know, don't miss a book. Be sure you've read every book of the Bible and be sure you've read it through a whole year. That would be good. Or that it means uh, the Bible's authority must be underscored and that, that's good as well. But actually, when uh, these institutions were founded, the whole Bible had a different, you might say, connotation to that expression. It meant the whole message of the Bible. And the, the, the conviction was there was some part of the Bible that wasn't being preached. So we were actually kind of like fighting against the rest of the, of the Christian world saying, Folks, you got to step into the whole of what the Bible says. And what would that be? And uh, oftentimes we have put it in terms of, of let's say, the Reformation, uh, the Continental Reformation, and the English Reformation then as in the Wesleyan Revival, in that we move from preaching just justification to preaching also sanctification. In other words, the Bible's message includes sanctification not simply justification. And that works pretty well. That's a good place to go. And if you want to leave the sermon now, that will work. That will be fine. But I want to ask a, a little bit of a finer point. And I want to quote a student recently in a class who um, stayed back and was inquiring about her, her past in terms her memories as growing up in a, a conservative evangelical church in New England. Uh, this, this student of mine uh, was middle-aged when she was asking me this, and she was thinking back to when she was in her teens and early 20s. The church she grew up in was um, very energized by the Great Commission. They, would, they could quote it, and they would go out in teams. You can, you, you can imagine in New England going out in teams to evangelize 
took some courage, some guts, uh, some chutzpah to go on into public places and share the gospel. But even in the commitment to that mission and even into the zeal for it, you know, you can hear the words evangelism, mission, obligation. You can hear heaven, not hell. You can hear confession of your sins. You can hear the, the whole rotation of elements that would have been part of, as she reported it, would have been part of their practice of evangelism. She found herself inwardly saying something like this, but where is love in all of that? Where is love in all that? Now, I suppose we could just quickly shame her and say, oh, come on now, just look at the Bible and don't, don't pull that. But I've decided to steal her question for the title of the sermon, where is love in the Great Commission? Well, I need to, and I've battled with where to put this in. So this is gonna feel a bit clunky. So I'm just, I've, I've decided to wedge this in here and say this, I know that there's a gigantic elephant in the room. And that elephant has to do with not only the cultural tsunami that we're in, but also in the um, seemingly unending church battle that many of you have been through where um, love and hate have been used as the alternate terms to describe, on the one hand, a progressive vision of the gospel, progressive uh, sexuality, a progressive uh, take on human relationships, etc., versus the orthodox Christian biblical. And I'm going to have to say that I think that in the public relations world out there, um, the other side, if you allow me to use that expression, has won. When you see a backpack with a heart on it, when you see a love bumper sticker, you're usually dealing with folk who are saying that this progressive vision is love and everything that, uh, that uh, is other than that is in fact hatred. I was, in a, I was serving at a camp meeting this summer, wonderful people and wonderful partners I got to share with. And one of the preachers uh, for his very first sermon got up and preached from the book of 1 John, and his opening line was this. I think you'll enjoy it. If I hear one more time that love wins, I'm gonna scream. Well, he's, he's giving expression to what most of us or many of us have as, an, you might say, an immediate visceral relation uh, response to anything that mentions love or let's love some more. And I must tell you that I kind of share in that. We, so much comes down to how we define love, doesn't it? I think I'm preaching mainly to the choir here, and so I'm not going to go much further down this road. If you need help, there are people all around, I think, who can help you in the business of redefining love. But here is what I, my challenge I want to lay down before us. Dare we run from love because others have claimed it? Absolutely not. We will lose our crown. We will lose our crown. It's our flag to reclaim, and we must not run from it. Um, for fear of lest I distract you, I've got some books up here. I need to read from them. This is not usually done in chapel. I'll do it anyway. This is my beloved old set, 
the old Jackson set of Wesley's works. And you might want to know there are more than 52 sermons. So I might want to just put the bug in Dr. Collins's ears. I think he's letting you off easy <laughs> by reading just the 52. I cannot believe that Ken has settled for a low bar. <laughs> in my reading through the sermons, and there are at least 150 that are published that I know of, in my reading through the sermons, I came to a sermon that, that truly blew me away. It's one that almost no one has heard about. It's number 132 in the old Jackson set. It has the inauspicious title of On Laying the Foundation of the New Chapel near City Road, London. Um, and it has, he has chosen um, <laughs> what appears to be an inauspicious scripture verse to be his text. Numbers chapter 23, verse 23. Now, God help us if we are going to, uh, you know, uh, allow ourselves to read or not read a sermon by, on the basis of title and scripture chosen. But that verse reads, according to this time it shall be said, what hath God wrought? Translation in modern English, look what God has done. This sermon he delivered as he was standing on the cornerstone of what today we call Wesley's Chapel. It was in an April uh, uh, morning. It was slightly raining. A man was standing with an umbrella over his head, over Wesley's head, as he read the sermon. This sermon came right at the 40-year mark after the revival had begun. He meant it to be a look back. He meant it to summarize everything they were and did and to look forward as well. And the sermon is divided into three parts. And one of those parts begins with, but what is Methodism anyway? Or we can put it, what is the Wesleyan revival? Or what is the Wesleyan movement? And I want to read uh, what he has written here in the sermon. And if you can imagine, uh, Wesley in a crowd in the rain as he's standing on a cornerstone. What is Methodism? It is not a new religion, but the old religion. None other than love. The love of God, the love of mankind. <clears throat> this love is the great medicine of life, the never-failing remedy for all the evils of a disordered world, mm. for all the miseries and vices of men. Wherever this love is, there virtue and happiness go hand in hand. There you will find humbleness of mind, gentleness, long-suffering. There you will find the whole image of God. He goes on, and here is where we're coming into the whole Bible. Here it is. He says, this is the religion of the Bible. As I love the way he <laughs> then lays the gauntlet down. As no one can deny who has read the Bible with any attention. <laughs> this is the religion which is continually inculcated therein, which runs through both the Old and New Testaments. Moses, the prophets, our blessed Lord, and his apostles proclaim with one voice. There you hear, if, this, if the Bible is inspired by the one God through the one spirit, there will be one voice we can find. One voice. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul and thy neighbor as thyself. 
The Bible declares, there's your single word, the Bible, that captures the whole thing, that love is the fulfilling of the law, it is the goal of the command, in fact, of all the commandments. The inward and outward fruits of this love are also largely described by the inspired scriptures, so that whoever allows the scriptures to be the word of God must allow that this is the true religion. So I'm saying that our founding father, if we allow him to be that for us, is one who emphatically, repeatedly, dramatically, and with great intention, as I read him, made love the very center and the very pinnacle of what he thought the entire Wesleyan revival was about. All the other terms we use, which are good and have their place, holiness, sanctification, purity of heart, uh, uh, the full image of God, as I understand it, he understood them all to be the manifestations of what happens when love comes to reign and control and rule everything that we are. Well, how to get to the whole Bible from that? I want to um, take a cue from Andreas Kossenberger, who is uh, one of the leading Johannine scholars today. Uh, he's um, Austrian-born. He has ministered largely in Baptist settings in, the North, in North America. And uh, he has, uh, in his work on John and the Johannine epistles, he's come to an interesting conclusion that I find, it, I find to be very, interest, very con uh, convincing, and that is that, my language here, there is strange electricity going on between the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels. Strange electricity. And here, follow this. It's pretty certain that the, that the fourth Gospel writers and writer knew the Synoptic tradition. And that there's almost no overlap at all between them, which has sometimes sponsored the idea that John meant his gospel to be a supplement to the synoptics. That is, folks, you all know what Jesus did, but they missed a bunch of stuff. I'm going to fill in the gaps. Supplement. There are numbers of reasons why that doesn't work, one of which is when you look at what John, quote unquote, leaves out, you're left with something that really can't be called a gospel. You leave out the transfiguration? You leave out all demonic exorcisms? I mean, one piece after another after another does not appear in John's gospel. We shouldn't call it a gospel, perhaps. Perhaps we should call it a collection of stuff, a supplement, an appendix to the synoptic gospels, unless, as Kostenberger suggests, there's a strange electricity going on. Let me illustrate it with one issue, and then I'll jump into what I want to do. The transfiguration. This is a manifestation of Jesus' glory. Key, a key point of transition in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Doesn't appear in John. So do we say that glory is not a feature of John's gospel? Not so. Here's what has happened. John has apparently said, I don't need to tell you the story of the transfiguration, you know it. I'm going to take that theme of glory. I'm going to blow it up. I'm going to spread it all the way across this gospel to where the whole thing becomes a story of glory. And Jesus revealed his glory. We saw his glory. We find these things peppered all over the place. Then, of course, the whole uh, prayer in John 17 and the cross itself becomes the glory of God revealed in and through Christ. As that illustration, let me just suggest that there are, 
five or six or seven other things like that that make one say, I think there's something going on in John, vis-a-vis -vis the synoptics. Let me talk about the issue of love, or I should, well, we'll talk about that. I can go back to the Great Commission. So in Matthew's Great Commission, we have these elements. Let me quickly walk through them again, but this time asking if there is something in John that unfolds it. The first item, all authority has been given unto me. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has put all things into his hands. John's Gospel takes the all authority and anchors it in the love of the Father in the gift of that authority to the Son. The whole character of this authority is the authority of love as the Father gives it. It will be the authority, it will be the nature of his authority to the world. In terms of sending, in terms of go, as we find in Matthew. In John, we have John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. The next verse, God sent the son into the world. May I attach to that then John 20.21, 20, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. The Father sent the son in love. The son sends the disciples in the same way the Father sent him in love. He says, make disciples. We find that in Matthew. In John, I am fascinated by the opening verse of the upper room scene where we read, now before the feast, the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. What must it have been like to be a disciple? of Jesus. You knew you were loved. This, this was the overwhelming reality. This was the first thing said to capture how Jesus related to his own. And if we're being sent to make disciples, <laughs> we might think of making them kind of like Jesus did, and kind of prioritizing the love relationship between Jesus and those he was leading. Baptizing into the name with Father, Son, and Spirit. Folks, yes, being baptized into the Trinity, but what is the Trinity? There isn't time here. There isn't time for another whole sermon or two or three about the Trinity being the eternal uh, fellowship and community of love. Father loving Son, Son loving Father. I will give you some assigned reading here. My teacher in me wants to assign it. A wonderful little book by Michael Reeves, actually given to me by Tim and Julie Tennant several years ago, delighting in the Trinity, delighting in the Trinity. To be baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit isn't just to get the right names pronounced over you when the water is splashing, nor to be sure you're in the right religion. It's to get you into the Trinity itself, the reality of Father loving Son, we're going to be thrown into the midst of that interplay of love between Father and Son. And then, this is like very low fruit on the tree right here, teaching them to obey all I've commanded. John's Gospel takes this command of Jesus, and Jesus says in several places, he says in John 13, and then in, again in 15, if you obey me, you'll stay in my love, and then the very two verses later, and this is my commandment, singular, 
it shows up three other times that you love one another. Reading the Great Commission in Matthew, according to the insights of John's gospel, as we read Jesus' call and uh, mandates through John's lens, we discover quickly that obeying him can be captured amazingly in loving one another. If we had another whole session, I would try to address the accusation that is often made against Johannine Christianity and Christians, some of them, to say that this represents a giant step backwards from loving the world. We're just told to love each other. Crawl up in a hole somewhere with y'all, with your friends, and love each other. And uh, again, I'm saying I'm not gonna address that, but I will for just a minute. <laughs> that, but that, by the way, Ben, I think is actually a figure of speech. When you say you're not gonna do something, you do it. But I didn't plan that, I just <laughs> fell into it here. Think about the disciples Jesus chose. They were not all alike. They were in tension with each other. You have businessmen and a tax collector. Go figure. You have possibly a political zealot and those who are not that of that cut. And then you say, oh, but they have brothers, you know. Oh, really? You know the first story in Genesis uh, after Eden? <laughs> Murder between brothers? How about Jacob and Esau? Tension between brothers? All the way you go through the line. Inner family conflict and hatreds characterize the human race. Ever been to a monolithic looking country church where they all look alike, they've all got the same jobs, they all have the same education, all the same hobbies? Oh, well they'll be at peace with each other then, won't they? I doubt it. Go as monolithic as you want. When you put the people of God together, you will find that as we rub elbows with each other, we discover we're not quite as holy or loving as we thought we were. Here's my little tiny challenge here and where I think Jesus is headed. If you can, if God can so change the heart and fill you with love that you can love inside the fellowship, then I think all the work will have been done for you to love outside the fellowship. That's what will happen. And then this last line here of I will be with you as an enabling reality. We read that, that way in, in Matthew's gospel. Here I want to talk about the effectiveness in mission in and through disciples who love each other. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, he also says back in 1423, that if you are one, if you have love for each other, that will be such a stupendous miracle and sign to the world that the world will take notice, they'll know who you are, and they will come, God willing, to believe. Odd, isn't it? Loving inside the circle creates the effectiveness in mission outside the circle. Something to think about. I don't know what my giftings are and aren't. Many times I think I have none, but one of the giftings I know I don't have is the gift of how to give an altar call. God has seen fit to allow me to stumble around and, and other things happen. So I thought I would do something that wouldn't try, I wouldn't try to you know, close the lasso on you all and say, here's an altar up here to come to. I thought I would let Mr. Wesley himself give the altar call. I think he'd be more effective than I would be anyway. I'm not sure he had altar calls. I think he, he, he implored people to seek God. 
But if you've read many of his sermons, the ends of his sermons often have that feel of a come to Jesus moment, don't they? And I want to read the last part of this sermon that I just began reading uh, for you a few moments ago. And here is his altar call. Be patient, it's about two paragraphs, but I think it's all worth it. Here it is. After he's laid it out as to what this religion is, it is nothing other than love. Uh, he says this, so how stands the matter in your own breast? And I ask you that question right now. Examine your conscience before God. Are you a happy partaker of this scriptural, truly primitive religion? Are you a witness of the religion of love? Are you a lover of God and all mankind? Does your heart glow with gratitude to the giver of every good and perfect gift, the father of spirits of all flesh, who gives life and breath to all things, who has given his son, his only son, that you might not perish but have everlasting life? Is your soul warm with benevolence to all mankind? He moves to the very end here, and I'll skip over. It's a longer altar call than I'll read, but here it is. So let our whole soul pant after a general revival of this pure religion and undefiled, the restoration of the image of God, that is, pure love in every child of man. Let us therefore endeavor to promote in our several stations this scriptural primitive religion. Let us with all diligence diffuse this religion of love among all we have any contact with. Let us provide all people uh, or provoke all people not to enmity and contention, but to love and good works, always remembering these deep words of the Lord. And now he quotes from 1 John 4. Uh, and he adds, oh, may God engrave these words on our heart. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. I don't know where all this has hit you. Um, that's a matter between you and the Lord, too to uh, work on, um, but I am, I am earnestly um, and sincerely praying for all of us and for our community and for myself that there will be a revival of who God is, of love, and that it will be the real deal. It won't be the fakes and the, um, and the partial kinds of love, the distorted and perverse kinds of love that are being advertised today, but we will take courage and actually drill down into the scriptural presentation of who our God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. Take ownership of our own heritage and ask that God will, in fact, fill and inflame us with love for him, love for the world, love for one another, and even love for ourselves. May God bless his word to our hearts.